With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I take a deep dive into the first Department of Financial Services, that's State of New York, enforcement action around cybersecurity involving First American Title Company. In this deep dive, I am joined by John Arnold, Chief Innovation Officer at K2 Intelligence Finn, and Sergeet Mahant, Managing Director at K2 Intelligence Finn Financial Crimes and Risk Compliance Practice. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and today I'm extraordinarily pleased to have with me John Fonz. I've known John for quite some time, and I wanted to visit with him about some of the thoughts, his thoughts rather, on what makes a good CECO, what makes a good compliance program, and how the Board of Directors works into all of that. So, John, first of all, uh, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, thanks, Tom. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, hope that uh, I can add some some color to some of the uh, things that go into be making a good chief compliance officer and and a good relationship with the board. John, I was wondering if you could detail for our listeners a little bit about your professional background. Uh, I started uh, in the legal profession in in house counsel back way back in in 1984, and have uh, worked for a variety of large and small publicly traded companies. Uh, I've been a general counsel for about 15 years, and uh, I uh, uh, joined a manufacturer in the Midwest that was uh, a publicly traded company uh, that had operations in 18 countries, uh, 14,000 employees, and I uh, created their their uh, compliance and ethics program from scratch, uh, and uh, uh, have been have been doing that for now about uh, twelve years or so. I've been in this uh, field since about two thousand and seven, and the company I worked for at the time had gone through an FCPA investigation and had sustained a violation. And I was part of the new uh, executive leadership team that came in to um, implement the DOJ solution. Or, or rather write a solution, which was a new compliance program. But one of the things the DOJ insisted upon was that the board of directors had to have a compliance committee. At that point in my uh, legal and professional career, I had not heard of that. And I, I, that's one of the things I've heard you advocate uh, throughout the years is a board having a compliance committee. Um, or, or I guess the way I've heard you phrase it is a board a uh, compliance function needs to report into a, a board committee separate from audit. And I was wondering if you might be able to expand on that a little bit. I mean, the audit committee is a, is a great committee to uh, have for obviously for a uh, publicly traded company. And I would assume for the privately held companies as well. Uh, but their focus is primarily on financial risk. You know, whether or not the uh, financial statements are, 
are properly stated and, and that uh, they can report accurately the financials to their shareholders. And, um, you know, over the years, compliance was added in to that, uh, but it's always been a uh, sort of a, a uh, appendix to the rest of the, uh, the operations of the audit committee. And, um, you know, back uh, during the days of Sarbanes-Oxley's in- introduction, uh, you know, committees uh, were required to have financial experts. Uh, and that's great, but that does little for the compliance world. You know, compliance is... is you know, primarily, or at least at a minimum, a, a risk uh, function. And uh, it's really an operational risk function more than a financial risk function, obviously. Uh, you know, if you're paying um, uh, fines to the DOJ or the SEC for uh, FCPA violations or for, uh, you know, sanctions violations, there's a financial component to that. But it's primarily a... Uh, operational risk, and and so that's really not the forte of the audit committee. And so having a risk committee or a compliance committee uh, would put the correct amount of focus on what I think is is one of the uh, the chief risks that any organization faces, particularly if they're doing business outside of the United States uh, and uh, doing business through third parties uh, in terms of. Uh, distributors and representatives, and uh, you know, with with the extended supply chains today, uh, people are buying things from all over the world. So these are these are risks that the uh, audit committee just really isn't poised to uh, to take on. John, if I could flip that thought uh, with my next question, which is, what would you suggest, or how would you suggest a compliance committee on the board oversee? a CCO, a CECO, or a compliance function. How do you see the board's, uh, excuse me, the compliance committee's role and how would they execute that role? Well, I think the, you know, uh, the standard should be that they need to look at uh, compliance as a strategic function of the organization. Uh, and so, again, it should not be something that is an afterthought or something that's a check-the-box kind of approach. They need to look at it from a strategic standpoint. And I think, you know, in today's world where you've got companies who are looking to do more than, than just simply shareholder value, but they're looking for stakeholder value, that's an important aspect of it. So they're, they're looking beyond just the, the, the bare financials. And, um, you know, they need to... Uh, partner with, in fact, they probably ought to be selecting the uh, chief compliance officer because uh, that person is going to be their eyes and ears in the organization. I mean, in a way, it's similar to internal audit, but it's a different different perspective. You know, internal audit's looking at and whether or not the controls are are um, are effective and operating, and uh, your compliance is looking to build the controls. Uh, and uh, so they need to uh, have, have that direct relationship with the uh, uh, with the chief compliance officer. And you know the um, aspects that you look at from the perspective of the DOJ. They recently uh, updated their guidance on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. They um, talked about the need for the board to have access to expertise. And while that's good, in fact, essential, 
um, you know, that uh, presumes that it's not going to be somebody on the board. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the need for uh, financial expertise uh, on the board is the same kind of thing that, that boards need to have compliance expertise. Uh, you know, the, the uh, compliance is, is uh, a specialized field. It's a growing field. Um, and frankly, most uh, board members only have a very small understanding of what compliance is or should be doing. So, um, you know, having somebody on the board um, and, you know, whether it's a risk committee or a compliance committee, whatever you call it, uh, you're going to need to have somebody who has some real understanding of compliance. So you need, I, I believe, to have a compliance expert on the board, you know. And um, compliances can be in a difficult situation. Uh, you know, you are a member of management, but... Uh, you also uh, really should be reporting directly to the board in their capacity as representatives of the shareholders. And, uh, you know, there's talk about having, well, you have to have private meetings with the uh, the audit committee or with the, the, the risk committee or compliance committee. Uh, but that puts the auditors in a very, or rather the board members in a very difficult situation because if, if there's conversations within that private meeting that haven't um, been surfaced with the, uh, the CEO or the general counsel or the CFO, uh, they're going to have to be surfaced with them. And, and then the uh, chief compliance officer is in a difficult spot. You know, another of the aspects that the, um, the Department of Justice's uh, updated uh, guidance uh, talked about is, is the need to have adequate resources. And, um, you know, that's quite frankly preaching to the choir uh, because it's going to be the chief uh, compliance officers that are reading that guidance. And they, uh, uh, I think everybody would agree that they're uniformly nodding their head yes, that we need adequate resources. And, and yet um, to get those resources, you're going into the general counsel or into the the uh, chief financial officer or into the, the CEO and having those discussions. And if they say, you know, this is what we're going to give you, um, you know, in the end, you're going to have to accept what they say. And, and that puts uh, the chief compliance officer in a tough spot because, um, you know, proper question from the board to the chief compliance officer is, do you have the adequate resources to do, uh, you know, a, an effective program? And if you're asked that in front of the CEO or the CFO or general counsel, um, how do you answer that question? Because if you say, I do, well, then you are going to have whatever you have. And if you say you don't, you've now disagreed with the CEO, GC, and and CFO. And if you try to sort of waffle on it, um, you know, uh, a sharp... Uh, board member is going to say, you know, tell us, you know, do you have the adequate resources? And so it's a real dilemma for for um, for the uh, chief compl- chief compliance officers, and uh, so they need to have the, uh, the the board committee setting that that level of resources uh, in conjunction with obviously the the chief uh, compliance officer. Now let me change the focus just a little bit to uh, the CECO or the CCO and sort of some of the structural protections a CCO 
can have. I've heard you articulate that you believe a CECO needs a written contract with a severance clause in there. Um, this perhaps is not unusual for a CEO, a CFO, but many CECOs may not have one. Why do you think that's so critical? Yeah, I mean, for some of what we just talked about, which is, you know, if you are uh, at risk of getting sideways with the CEO or the uh, CFO or the general counsel, um, and uh, they have the ability to, to terminate you, um, you you are not going to have that that independence that is necessary. You know, the the uh, uh, Institute of Internal Auditors just came out with their revised uh, three lines model, and they talked about independence for the internal audit function. I think they got a little bit off on on the the uh, the uh, compliance function. Also, needs to have that level of of uh, independence, and I think that's what the uh, Department of Justice and that revised guidance is talking about, that they're looking for, uh, you know, that having sufficient autonomy. Um, you know, the, the, the DOJ is looking for the uh, chief compliance officer to really have a robust program uh, that is not getting filtered or influenced by uh, other managers or other members of, of senior management. And, and uh, that you're always at risk if you are, uh, you know, subject to the employment at will um, aspects, and I think really, again, this is an, a, a situation where the board needs to have uh, direct involvement. I think historically, uh, you know, the board has looked to management and says, you know, say, do you have the kind of programs you think you need? And they, uh, you know, talk to the CECO or the CCO, and. They give them their opinion, but can they really give them their full, uh, you know, unbridled opinion? You know, you, the uh, chief compliance officer can get themselves into situations such as when there are internal investigations uh, that may or may not involve uh, management or particularly senior management. And that's a, a very challenging situation. And they are... Uh, looking to the the chief compliance officer to give them the unvarnished truth, and again, you're sitting in a audit committee meeting or a board meeting with the CEO and the CFO sitting there, uh, general counsel sitting there, and you may not have the same opinion that they have, and and expressing that uh, puts you know the, that person at a career risk, and so I think um, you know having a um, a contract, a written con- employment contract, with the protection of of, of severance um, guaranteed in there is 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 really where companies need to get to, uh, and I think until that time, you're not trying to truly have the autonomy that that the DOJ is looking for. You mentioned that autonomy a couple of times, John. Uh, that is uh, in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance program. That's uh, something that the Department of Justice has articulated for some time now, at least back to 2017 and perhaps even a little bit earlier, is that something is because the department puts that in a document like the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, does that help a CECO uh, when they need to go in and talk to the board, when they need to go in and talk to senior management about the structure of their role? It does. There's no question about it. It, it um gives them you know a basis for 
stating that that they need to have a level of independence. Again, it, you know, if in the current uh, practices of having the uh, compliance officer report into the audit committee, um, you know, are they actually at the table? Uh, you know, they they may be uh, giving a report to the general counsel who reports into the audit council audit committee. Uh, you know, they may be um, only going attending one or two uh, meetings a year. Um, so, you know, they're what they say uh, is getting maybe getting filtered. You know, the the CEO or the the general counsel is reviewing the report before it goes to the board. Uh, so, it, you know, you can argue that it's somewhat sanitized by the time it gets to the board. Uh, it certainly is going to express an opinion that is that is consistent with uh, the opinions of the, the CEO and the and the. Uh, um, and the uh, and the and the general counsel, and and so you know if the board is looking for again for that unvarnished truth, they may well not get it uh, because of fear uh, by the uh, uh, the this chief compliance officer uh, that they can't uh, you know sidestep the uh, the senior management, and so you're not going to get that autonomy uh, unless unless you have something like a uh, an employment agreement that that provides you with some protection. I have one colleague who, for a, a long period of time, at least 10 years, has advocated that the termination of a CECO should be an 8K event. You take that, I think, a step further in that both the hiring and the termination of a CECO should be an 8K event. I was wondering if you might explain to our audience what an 8K event is and then why you advocate both the hiring and termination should be 8K events. You know, when there is something that uh, occurs to a publicly traded company that the shareholders um, would have an interest in that you know, might have a material uh, effect on the, uh, the price of the securities, uh, the company is obligated to file a, uh, a filing, an 8K filing, which uh, if you look at it, you know, you've got 10Ks. And you've got 10 Qs, the 10K being the annual report, the 10Q being the quarterly report. Uh, in between, something occurs that's significant to the shareholders, then it's an 8K. And, um, you know, the uh, chief compliance officer, really, their, their real client, if you will, is the shareholders. And, um, you know, they, they act through the board, which are the representatives of the shareholders, but, you know, they are looking out for the uh, the uh, the shareholders. In fact, in a sense, the you know there's the old adage of the canary in the mine. You know that if the canary uh, gets sick and dies in the mine, the miners all need to be worried that they better get out of the mine because there's you know the the uh, the colorless odorless gas that that can kill them in there. And you know if the if the uh, uh, compliance officer is suddenly no longer uh, there. Um, then the uh, board, but then really the shareholders, should be aware that there's this kind of a change. And, and uh, you know, um, when you are hiring somebody into that role, obviously there's a need to have that uh, person be very qualified. They they have to have, you know, the the background and. Uh, the track record to demonstrate that they can make an effective program um, and and keep it working, and uh, um, 
again, the shareholders should want to know about that because that, uh, I think, believe impacts materially on on the uh, operations of the of the company. So, you know, it's again, it's going back to this, this idea that it's a it's a risk function. Um, you know, if if the company decided it was going to get rid of insurance on its its properties, you know, and just say, well, we're going to save some money by not uh, buying an insurance policy this year for our, our property, plant, and equipment. Um, I think the shareholders would be concerned about that. Um, and, and likewise, if, if a company decides we're, we're going to go without uh, our uh, you know, chief compliance officer uh, to save some money in the, in the short run, um, that's something that I think the, the uh, shareholders would all likewise be concerned about and, and certainly want to know about. John, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, uh, but this has been a fascinating exploration of some topics that I don't think really get uh, enough play in the compliance community. Perhaps they're somewhat esoteric, perhaps they're too technical, but I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. Good, Tom. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and, and uh, uh, hope that uh, added some color to the conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm running a couple of special series I'd like to visit with you about that I hope you'll listen to. The first one is a series on Wirecard and the accounting fraud fallout from that that goes out every Wednesday that I'm doing with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. The second is this month in September on the Compliance Life, I have Deanna Wonkwo who is a former CCO, and she talks about her journey to the CCO chair and some of her experiences in joining it. Deanna has perhaps the most unique compliance background of anyone I know. She was in QAQC at NASA before she moved to the company where she became CCO. So it's a great story. I know you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, The Compliance Life has become an incredibly popular series, so check it out. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.